one of the Bible's consistent commandments, is one of Advent's most repeated refrains. Fear not, be not afraid, do not fear. The angel appears to Zechariah, the husband to Elizabeth, the father to John, and fear overwhelms him. He is terrified. And do not fear, the angel says. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is greeted by the angel with the same words. Do not fear. To Joseph, as though in a dream, the words come, fear not. To those shepherds under the deep blue of midnight with their flocks trembling at what they have seen, do not be afraid, the chorus rings out. Because that's where the Christmas story begins. Not firstly with hope and joy, peace and love, but with fear. Which is where our own lives hover too, don't they? I awake in the night at the least sound, the poet Wendell Berry has written, for fear, fear of what my life and my children's lives might be. And how much more do we fear that in this season, this Advent, which has so much unknown and complexity and encroaching concerns? How much more amidst the conflict that we observe in our world, the ending of a ceasefire this week, the seemingly impossibility of conflict and peace, and the growing loss of innocent lives, the mounting questions about the moral clarity and humanitarian restraint of leaders. How much more do we fear amidst the suffering, the questions, the uncertainties and anxieties that we each of us carry individually in our own lives? Many of us are not entering into a season of waiting so much as we are already people who wait. Father Henry Nouwen has written on the spirituality of waiting. He was writing in 1985 when he observed this about his place and time. In our particular historical situation, Nouwen wrote, waiting is even more difficult because we are so fearful. One of the most pervasive emotions in the atmosphere around us is fear. People are afraid and fearful. People have a hard time waiting because when we are afraid, we want to get away from where we are and we want to go someplace else just as quickly as we can. And yet we are where we are. We can't leave. We can't depart for Bethlehem. Not just yet. We can't form an angelic choir. We can finally hardly find a way to sing ourselves sometimes. We can't sprint toward the manger. And certainly not all at once. We must be present here, now. Present to God, to one another, to ourselves. And so perhaps this Advent is a time where we consider our own fears and how Christ comes to us precisely amidst them. How Christ comes to people who are afraid. Those who tremble, for instance, with the fear that we consider this morning on this first Sunday of Advent, do not fear the silence around us. But we do, don't we? Many of us are afraid of it. So many of us, in fact, that a psychological category has developed for this particular fear. Sedataphobia, it is called. A fear of silence, which can be triggered by any number of things. There are those who associate silence with loss, with pain. There are those for whom our anxious thoughts are most persistent when it's quiet. There are those who feel pressured to perform or have been criticized for being quiet or have come to have their voice overpowered so that they're not heard. There are some of us who simply like the distraction that all of the noise provides. And there are so many of us who rush to break any looming silence anytime it visits. 
The composer John Cage was known for music that employed long periods of silence. And when the music would stop without fail, concert goers would quickly fill the resulting silence with shuffling, with shifting, with fiddling with their pamphlets and brochures, with whispers to one another. And at a time when this was a bit more acceptable in public, with all the sounds of nervous coughing and clearing of one's throat. And what do we do when the music stops? Especially as people of faith. And how often do we simply fill up the stillness? How frequently do we race to get away from there and to break the quiet? And maybe never any more so than in this season each year when everything begins to pull us toward the volume and the music of Christmas, the harmony of joy to the world, the sounds of organ and brass, the chorus that we hope will break against the skies of our lives, the comfort of all of that light and that volume. This week, my wife Jenny and I had the opportunity to travel to New York City with our daughter Della for a 10-year-old trip. Della is 11 and a half, if that tells you anything about our lives. But we all made the time. And it was full of wonder and togetherness and the gift of this remarkable person that we get to call our daughter. And our, on our return flight, there were passengers in the waiting area near us, and I guess they didn't get my AirPods in or look occupied enough. They began to strike up a conversation and they began to talk about how they'd been in the city for the tree lighting. Were y'all there? Did you go to the tree lighting? We did not, no. But they did, and they really wanted to talk about it, and especially to describe the ordeal of arriving at noon for the 10 p.m. tree lighting at the Rockefeller Center. They waited for 10 hours. They and that mass of people were corralled first from one pen, then to another, and then to a final one, moving along with the rest of the throngs of people, demonstrating the lengths that all of these people would go to get close to all of that light, to all of that festivity. We approached it ourselves one night, just walking by, and the closer and closer we got, the more unimpressed Della was, this is way too loud, she said. And while the message of Christmas is in part that God is in that music, that God is in the angel choir, that God is in the swelling volume, the message of Advent might just be that God is in the stillness, that God is in the silence. For so often, our lives, they are not loud. They're not full of hope and joy, but full of monotony, full of things that feel lifeless and shallow, passionless, convictionless, and still. And that's where we find Isaiah in our reading. Isaiah is not racing forward with hope. Isaiah is simply enduring, wondering when he will hear from God. He's clearing his throat to speak into the silence of his own advent. You can hear in the text what we might call the frustration of Isaiah. Our reading begins with the prophet almost in lament, crying out to God, God, how we wish you would break open the heavens and come on down here. How we wish the mountains would tremble at your presence. How we wish you would make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake. In other words, that's what we wish. God, come down, show up. Demonstrate your power in ways that we can't deny. 
It's been so long since anyone has heard you, O God, Isaiah says. It's been so long since any eye has seen you. No one calls your name anymore. No one strives to lay hold of you anymore. In other words, it's so silent. It's more silent than we wish it were. Too silent sometimes for us to sense your presence. So silent that we struggle to call your name, to lay hold of you. We feel like you're hidden from us, God. Isaiah is known as the prophet of Advent. As a person who knows so intimately well both the unmistakable volume of God's presence and the uneasy stillness of what feels like God's absence. And Isaiah means so much to us in our own Advents because we we know both of those things too. I don't know about you, but there are those times when I've bowed my head to pray and I have felt nothing. I've sensed that there's nothing happening. The words couldn't come, and who knows where they went, but certainly if they came out, they went no higher than the ceiling. I don't know about you, but there are times when I wanted to say the right thing to the person who was lost, who was grieving, who was broken, and I couldn't find it. I couldn't reach it. It was just so silent. I don't know about you, but I've watched overwhelmed and seemingly helpless as the wicked prosper and the innocents suffer, and I've struggled to find any meaningful, hearable words of justice. And I don't know about you, but I've grimaced and I've grieved over the seeming impossibilities of our world. In the language of Isaiah, show us something, God. Do something. Rend the heavens. Break open the mountains. Do something. Make some noise. Because A God that makes noise is a God that I can always hear. A God that breaks things open and comes with great displays and strength is a God that I can always see. And a God that shines the light so brightly and eases my fears so decisively is a God that I can always know and commit to follow. But then one thing we learn so clearly in this Advent season is that sometimes God isn't like that at all. In fact, sometimes God doesn't make noise. Sometimes God makes silence. I love the writing of Kathleen Norris, who early in her life, before she was a prolific devotional writer, spent time teaching in elementary schools in North Dakota to Native American children especially, and she's reflected about this experience of traveling to different classes, teaching about writing. And I love the story she tells about this exercise that she would do with the class where she would say, class, I'll make a deal with you. First, you get to make all the noise you want, and after that, after that, you have to make silence. And here's how it worked. She would raise her hands, and the kids would make as much noise as they possibly could. They could scream, clap, stomp, bang on their desk as much as they wanted, but as she lowered her hand, they had to stop. And she writes that it took several times to get the noise level loud. The kids kids couldn't actually believe that their teacher was encouraging them to do this. She would beg for more and more, and soon they would get it, and the room would be howlingly loud. And she also wrote that it took even longer, it took so much practice to really make silence with them, because inevitably, someone would break it. There would be a funny face, 
There would be rustling of the papers. There would be a murmur or a squeak of a chair. There would be a cough. There would be a clearing of the throat. It took so much practice to make the silence, but eventually she found that the children could become just as good and just as able at making silence as they were at making noise. And she makes two observations about this little experiment. First, she says the silence always evoked more from the students than the noise did. She encouraged them to write about it. When they described the noise, it was all the same. It was cliches. It was unoriginal writing. We were like a herd of animals, or there was so much noise we couldn't hear ourselves think, they would say. But when they wrote about silence, there was this burst of imagination and creativity. There was a liberation in it. There were these deep images, like one student who said, being as slow and silent as a tree spreading its branches. One girl wrote a poem that described it like spiders spinning their webs. And another little girl offered this gem about the silence. She said, it reminded me to take my soul with me wherever I go. And the second observation was that while some kids loved it, others did not. They were hesitant. They were reluctant. And why is that? Kathleen Norris would ask them, why did you not want to do it? And one fifth grader replied, because it's scary. It's like we're waiting for something. And fearful people have a hard time waiting. But it comes down to this, that if Advent begins in silence, and if God is sometimes making silence around us, well then, Maybe we shouldn't be afraid of it. In fact, maybe we should be making silence too. To always insist for the things that Isaiah is calling for. Break open the heavens, tremble the mountains, quake all of our enemies. That's really not much more than asking God to make a little noise, right? And is that the only God that we want? Is that the only God that we have enough faith to follow? Or might Advent give us the chance to practice another way of knowing God and trusting God and following God? Many of you know the great preacher and writer Barbara Brown Taylor, who some years back wrote a book about her experience with the silence of God. It was called Learning to Walk in the Dark. And in it she observes that Christianity has never had anything nice to say about darkness. Goodness, historically, has been associated with lightness and evil connected to darkness. And perhaps this seems a harming either-or binary of light and dark, but the metaphors have traveled a treacherous path over the years in which anything that is dark, even a person's skin color, has been associated with evil and easily dismissed, a sense that nothing good could come from darkness, from the night. And so darkness becomes shorthand for anything that scares me, that's beyond my control, that's beyond my knowledge. And Taylor says that so often we, as people of faith, and especially in the church, have propagated what she calls a full solar spirituality that focuses on staying in the light of God around the clock. But she says the faithful need to discover what she calls a lunar spirituality. A spirituality and understanding that recognizes that humans need darkness right along with the light. She writes this, I have learned things in the dark that I could never have learned in the light. I have learned things during dark times that saved my life over and over again so that there is only one logical conclusion that we need darkness as much as we need light. 
I was remembering this week friend and church member and late saint Rick Milligan, who many of you remember walked through the darkness of a very aggressive cancer, and particularly heightened in the season of Advent 2020. These were days of distance. We were all trying to find ways to connect with one another, to support one another, whatever it is that we carried. Our pastoral staff was searching for this, especially throughout the Advent season. And so one exercise was we decided to schedule some caroling visits to members of our church. And we showed up in the yard outside of Rick's home. And we asked him, amidst our usual lineup, if there was anything that he wanted to sing. And I will always remember standing in that yard and on the porch, the silhouette of my friend who was so faithfully journeying through his hopes and his fears as we sang his requested carol, Silent Night. And I think Rick would have said, that there are things we can learn in the silence that we will never learn in the noise. And we won't learn them if we keep shuffling and shifting and breaking the stillness. Keep alert, the gospel reading for this first Sunday of Advent says, because the movement of God is something you can, in fact, miss if you are not watchful, if you are not listening, if you are not aware. So perhaps all of the silence can liberate us. Perhaps it can help us to understand our lives more deeply and more truthfully. It can help us to know God not just in the moments of volume, but also in the moments of quiet where we spend so much of our lives. And is it scary? Absolutely. Does it feel like we're waiting for something? No doubt. But maybe it also reminds us to take our souls with us wherever we go. Yes, Advent teaches us that sometimes God doesn't break open the heavens to come down. Sometimes God sneaks into a barn on the edge of town to be born in the stable of the world that held little room amidst all of its urgent noise. So do not be afraid of this silence, friends. For if we're still enough, we learn that the silence comes right before the sound, which visits as quietly as a star that breaks against an otherwise monotonous sky, that comes as silently as an angel who appears as though in a dream, and that shows up as softly as a baby crying in a manger. Enough noise now. Make silence. Make silence. Amen.